This is Shift Run Stop, a fun podcast about games and cultural stuff and comedy and interviews. Hello, welcome to Shift Run Stop. Uh, it's episode 36 and we've got a special guest for you today, haven't we, Leila? A very special guest, yeah. We're really, really excited about this one. It's uh, Maggie Adarian Pocock. Is that right? <laughs> That's correct, thank you. Hey, she's <laughs> got the pronunciation and everything. And Maggie <laughs> is not only, I was going to say, a doctor, but we've had, we've had several doctors. <laughs> not, um, not just a mere doctor. Not, yeah, not just a doctor. She's also an MBE, which I'm particularly <laughs> impressed with. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Must be, the MBE surprises me too, <laughs> <laughs> when did you get your MBE? Uh, it was in the New Year's Honours list at the end of 2008. Okay. So, yeah, 2009 New Year's Honours list. Wow. And is there, a, there isn't a title that goes with that that we have to call you? We don't have to no. call you... <laughs> but you have to genuflect. Yeah, well, obviously. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing... I, <laughs> yeah, I think you don't actually have to kneel throughout the programme. <laughs> <laughs> One knee is better than two, isn't it? So we should say uh, what you might know Maggie from if you haven't uh, already come across her. So she's... Uh, is it fair to say that you're a rocket scientist? Or? Well, yes. Well, I'm actually a space scientist. A space scientist. Yes. Because we actually build and manufacture uh, satellites that go up into space, mm-hmm. which is very good fun. <laughs> Quite challenging, though, and not lots of paperwork which you wouldn't suspect so it's not something you can just do of a weekend on a whim you have to you have to fill in forms you have to plan quite a bit although i mean there are things called cubesats which are sort of 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters and you can build one of those quite quickly but it still costs about twenty-five thousand pounds to launch it so oh, okay and even on that scale and who would you get to launch that like would you oh. you wouldn't be able to do that in your back garden would you? no no yes <laughs> lots of vinegar and bicarbonate <laughs> and really cross your fingers no because um there are little pods and so people will launch maybe 10 or 20 CubeSats at once. So the problem with Roscosmos is uh, one of the launch uh, people, but there are a few smaller uh, launch vehicles where they yeah, launch CubeSats as well. Cool. Yeah. I've seen a picture of something which was a small satellite that was the shape of a cube, so I'm guessing that was that one of those. CubeSat. It'll be a CubeSat. <laughs> Tell us about the Blue Peter satellite then. It was a, a crazy idea I had a little while ago. And to try, because I spent quite a bit of my time speaking to school kids and trying to get them excited about space. And I thought one of the best ways would be to actually have kids have their own satellite mm-hmm. so I um, got in contact with some chaps from Blue Peter uh, fantastic chaps and um, I acquired a satellite <laughs> it's worth about 11 million pounds yeah it's right <laughs> off the back of the lorry <laughs> and uh, we launched it um, last year and the idea is that it's an earth observation satellite mm-hmm. so we'll take pictures of planet earth we want those to go on um, a website for kids and kids actually process the information look at things like climate change uh, glaciers receding wow. um, rainforests uh, being uh, depleted things like that that's brilliant and now, so the satellite's been launched, but we're still. Tr- um, uh, and we actually went onto the Blue Peter program and showed the satellite being put together in the lab. But we just got to get um, the website off the ground, hopefully. Wow, that's a brilliant project. It's really exciting. It's it yeah. it good fun. And where's you launch it from? Not the Blue Peter Garden. Uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's for the next project. But, no, it was actually launched um, in Baikonur, which is where uh, Yuri Gagarin uh, took his first flight and um, uh, where the Russians launched most of their rockets from. Oh, wow. The International Space Station passed over Earth, I don't know, Britain. London. <laughs> London. London okay, yeah, because it's, it's an orbit. <laughs> of course it passed over Earth, that's his job. Um, <laughs> it's it, it does that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and people could see it, and this was, I think, just the other day, yesterday, when we were recording this now. Um, did you see it with your telescope? I'm guessing you've got oh, a telescope. I have got a telescope. <laughs> I built my first telescope when I was 15 years old. Because wow. you can sort of grind your own mirror, and so that's what I did. Really? Yeah. You yeah. ground your own mirror? Yes. And built your own... <laughs> yeah, my mirrors, Maggie. <laughs> 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 but they're funny, they're not usually as good. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I, I bought a telescope um, from a, a department store and it wasn't very good. And I'd saved up all my pocket money, so I was trying to work out what to do. And I lived in Camden at the time in London and they have telescope making classes. And what you do is quite simple. You take two thick pieces of glass, you know, sort of Pyrex or something with... Um, that sort of doesn't expand too much in the heat and uh, you put an abrasive powder in between and you start grinding and you grind and you grind and you grind and, and something magical happens because the piece of glass underneath sort of comes out sort of a curve shape with sticking up the piece on top comes out a curve shape but it's worn away and you keep on grinding and grinding and grinding and eventually you get two spherical surfaces wow. you're wearing the, the edge away of the bottom piece okay. and the centre away of the top piece so for the first few rubs of it you're intentionally kind of taking a, an angle yes and sort of big strokes and you sort yeah, of, yeah that's working the edge yeah. and that's working the centre of the top and the, uh, the edge of the bottom mm-hmm. and the thing is it takes months to do wow. but you keep on grinding and grinding away and eventually yeah, you get two spherical surfaces but a sphere isn't a very good telescope because if you uh, focus light from a long distance on a sphere it doesn't come to a sharp focus mm-hmm. what you need is something called a parabola and so what you do is you take your sphere and you work the centre of the um, concave mirror and when you work the centre of that you actually take a bit more glass and you get a parabola mm-hmm. and then light from millions of miles away comes focuses on the mirror and comes to a nice sharp focus. <laughs> and so at the age of uh, 15, you made, was this your, the first telescope that you'd made? Yes, yes it was. And what were you able to see with it? Ooh. Well, you can make out the rings of Saturn. Wow. Just about make out moons of, with a bit of poetic licence, uh, the moons of Mars. And just, and craters of the moon were fantastic. Oh, brilliant. And that's what, because uh, living in London, you've got lots of street lights and light pollution, mm-hmm. so you can't see that much out there. Yeah. But um, uh, yeah. See the moon. The moon was fantastic. It really was a, a joy to behold. And did you work out what magnification you were getting from Ah, oh, let's see. Because it wasn't that huge. I think it was about times... Because it also depends on what eyepieces you use as yep. well. So I was probably getting about times 100, that sort of thing. Wow. And it was, yes, it was just over six inches. So That's brilliant. I want to make a telescope. Oh, do you, but, yeah, many people do. Yeah. That's really cool. I never thought that you could grind your own lenses before. That's... Yes. Actually, well, so this is grinding a mirror. The grinding a mirror. Yes. Because, see, um, you usually want to grind a mirror because you want a reflective surface. If you want to grind a lens, the light passes through the lens. Mm-hmm. So you need very, very good quality glass. Okay. But if you've got a mirror, as long as you get the shaping right, then because the light doesn't pass through the mirror, um, uh, it means that you don't have to have such high quality glass. When you're taking the mirror from being uh, a spherical curve to being a uh, parabolic one. Yes. Are there any tricks for sort of getting the shape of that right? Do you have to keep testing it? Or? Uh, yes. And that's where it gets very, very fiddly and that's where the time goes. Because what you do is you sort of have to work the very centre of the mirror more than the edges. And so you work it and then you, there's something called a knife edge test. And um, what the problem is when you work it, it heats up so the glass expands. Right. So you work it and you have to wait till it cools down and it goes back to its normal shape. Then you test it doing this knife edge test which shows you where the peaks and troughs are. And then you realise, oh no, I haven't gone far enough. And so you work it again. And so it's a very slow process because you work it, let it cool down, test it, realise you need a bit more... (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. Well, what about thinking there's two kinds of telescope? You have different sorts of telescope design. And so, um, uh, for instance, the type of telescope I was making, um, actually the one I've been describing is a Newtonian, wow. where you have uh, light coming in from a distance, reflecting off um, uh, the parabolic mirror to a flat and then coming out. And so these are the... Um, you see long telescopes where people aren't looking through the end, they're actually looking at the top of the telescope, effectively where the light's coming in. So that's a Newtonian type of telescope. But you get other telescopes where you have two mirrors we have light coming in reflecting off one mirror reflecting off another mirror and then back down through the uh, telescope so yeah these different designs you sometimes you have an inverted image sometimes you have an image that's the right way up depending on how many reflections you have okay
the first person who came up with a reflecting telescope was Newton, so quite a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but um, if you want a really big telescope, so I've worked on some world-class telescopes, and you can have a mirror which is eight metres in diameter, and that's fantastic because you get so much light then. <laughs> you can see really faint, distant objects. Maggie's eyes really lit up when she said eight metres in diameter, <laughs> and you probably heard <laughs> it. <laughs> She's so tempting. The universe, yes. all of it. <laughs> yes. And you've been quite involved with uh, various um, sort of space telescopes, haven't you? Tell us yes. about tell us about what you've been doing there. Uh, because um, uh, most people are fairly familiar with the Hubble Space Telescope, and that's been taking fantastic images. But it's been out there for 20 years now. It's celebrating 20 years this year. And so that's a long time for space instrumentation. And um, there's been various missions, rather embarrassing the first one, because the mirror wasn't quite shaped correctly, which was highly embarrassing. But it's moving swiftly on. And then it's had some other missions just to sort of update it and change uh, some computing and things like that um, but it's getting too old and so there won't be any more missions to fix it or update it so we're building the next generation space telescope called uh, the James Webb Space Telescope that's due to be launched in about two years time and it's similar to Hubble but it's different in some ways because um, one of the things is Hubble works with visible light whereas the James Webb Space Telescope is actually going to be using infrared light and so it gives us a, a different view of the universe and uh, the James Webb's uh, mirror is six and a half metres so quite a large beam to get into space mm. that will be looking at uh, the formation of galaxies and also looking at some of the oldest radiation in the universe so some of the remnants of the Big Bang so it should be very exciting <laughs> is, the, is the purpose of the mission to see the origins of the universe or are there other things that it's, it's hoping to do? Yes, yeah, so origins of the universe um, sort, of a, um, a, sort of a galaxy formation it's a, a, a whole plethora of different things mm. because when you look at the infrared this um, Hubble um, not the space telescope but the bloke he found some evidence to to support the idea that the universe was expanding. And what Hubble did is he um, was actually getting data and he realised that when he looked at many, many distant stars and galaxies, they seemed to be moving away from us and their light, as a result, was shifted towards the red. Other people took that data and came up with the idea of the expanding universe. So this is one of the things that the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be looking at because redshift takes you from... Uh, if you have blue light, it'll be shifted towards the red. But if you have visible light, it's shifted towards the infrared. And so by having an infrared telescope, we're looking at uh, light, visible light, something that was once visible light, but has been shifted into the infrared. So it means that we are looking at things that are expanding outwards mm. and things that um, have been expanding outwards for a long time, so they have a, a strong red shift. We, we know that Hubble, uh, the telescope, was named after Hubble, the scientist. Yes. Who, who was James Webb? Was he a, That's uh, always a question people ask. <laughs> um, because um, originally the James Webb Space Telescope was going to be called the Next Generation Space Telescope, which sounds very tricky. <laughs> but then some, at some point during the project, they said, nah, let's call it the James Webb. And James Webb turned out to be the second administrator of NASA. Okay. <laughs> it seems odd to name it after Some an administrator. <laughs> he was a secretary who worked at NASA. Yes. But and what he did is he was actually one of the forces behind the moon landings. Oh, right. So a very, very critical guy. Yeah. And so that's why they've named it after him. But yes, no one's really heard of him. <laughs> but hopefully this space telescope will put him on the map. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, Nola. Hi, Bree. I meant to ask you this last week, yes. but... Is it true that all the rage is back? For, for one issue only, at the moment, oh. for one issue only, because it was a lot of work this time. What is all the rage? All the rage is, uh, is the most accidentally read PDF magazine on the internet, because of its amazingly generic name. It's, um, it's a response to lifestyle magazines, and it's in PDF format, and it's free, and you can get it from alltherage.org.uk. I edited it for about two years, and um, then I sort of stopped last summer, 
and then I kind of put some feelers out people kept asking me when it was coming back and loads of people expressed interest in it and in writing for it so I brought one back for a big massive bonus summer special huge issue which is out this month and what's it about? There's a different theme each month with all the rage you see, and this month I decided the theme was going to be style. It's it's not like um it's not a blog. It's a proper magazine that you can download, and specifically the articles aren't like blog posts. So I ask them to do things like lists or um sort of in depth analysis of certain weird obsessions or things that are much more um involved and interesting than just reading someone's sort of column style opinion on something or um, a fairly light blog post about something so it's it is light and funny but at the same time the style is quite particular so it's hard to explain without actually seeing it and yeah and it's style and we had Naomi Oldman who you remember from an early episode she found oh. lovely Naomi who writes uh, about games writes for games and writes about games yeah and books and also writes novels and she wrote something about uh, about what it'd be like if you were a Jew on the Starship Enterprise, because one day she imagines the Jews will have to go into space, and how will they cope with the uh, the, the uh, replicators? And will, you know, is replicator bacon kosher, kosher or not? Exactly. This is this is what she brought up in her article, which was excellent. She's a genius. Uh, who else? We have um, Adam Tandy, who was uh, our first guest, I think. Guest number one. Yeah. The so. producer of In the Loop and The Thick of It. Also, Armando Iannucci's producer in general. He seems to produce most mm. of Armando's stuff. Yeah. So he's... Alan uh, Partridge and others. Yes, exactly. And currently, he said in his bio, which he wrote himself, which I thought was a bit presumptuous, um, on his article, he wrote a bio saying that, um, who he was and also saying that he's now producing a show about airports with, uh, for Matt Lucas and David Williams. Ooh. So look forward to that. Um, new new sitcom or something that they're doing. And he wrote about Grace Kelly and uh, how sort of the, the early jet set and what happened there and how it sort of ties into what's happening with our economy now. It's really interesting. And he's obviously a very clever man, so you should read that. Who else? Um, some other people. Oh, Peter Fletcher, who was on the episode with Kath O'Flynn and the little baby. Remember oh, that one? Little baby Edie, a.k.a. Yes. Joyfeed. That's yes. Peter Fletcher, That's not him. the baby. Yeah. Yes, they didn't call that yeah. baby Joyfeed. Yes, he wrote very, a very funny thing about um, things that you can drop when you're walking down the stairs. Um, and what, you know, is it okay to drop a canary in a cage? Because technically, <laughs> it should be fine. Um, very good, very clever. Um, there are more people might remember from various um, Alan Partridge, Leon Herring sort of things, and obviously does his own brilliant Edinburgh shows as a one-man show. Has a book out, and it's gone down. And secret Corey Doctorow quote in there as well. If you Ooh. see, you can find that. Well, it's exciting to have all the rage back on. I was going to say the the shelves, but of course on the, <laughs> the interweb near yeah. you, and uh, alltherage.org.uk for mm. your style needs. Yes. The anti-style magazine, yes, enjoy. Thanks for letting me do this plug as well. Extended (laughs) plug. It's not bringing me any money. It's just for fun. So this one is is banana, which is particularly exciting. Oh, they're boiled sweets. They're like two fruity polos joined together. I I don't know, does anyone speak Spanish here? Well, I assume it's the same word. In English, Virginia's? it's Virginia's, but they're called Doblays, meaning double. Oh. I don't know, aren't they? Because there's two in a little pack. Mm. So I bought these uh, on my way home from Spain uh, a few weeks ago. Mm. I thought they looked nice. As Lola's demonstrating, they're quite crunchy, aren't they? They're like a sort of boiled fruit polo kind of thing mm-hmm. without the hole in the middle. 
nice. But you think it's a range of range yeah, of colours like though. We don't get banana boiled sweets very often in this country. I've never seen it. It's the sweetest taboo, <laughs> as Chardé would put it. Actually says in English as well. Mm-hmm. Two pieces fruit flavoured candies assorted. Mm-hmm. Sugar, glucose, syrup, citric acid flavours. Colours depending. Elaborated in a factory that uses cereals. Virginia Doble. Mm. Oh yes. Was this the smallest size pack they gave mm-hmm. <laughs> It's quite a big bag. You know what it's like in the duty free shop? Everything's massive, isn't it? Mm. This is this is the taste of a European holiday, isn't it? Mm. This is like wandering into a shop, finding boiled sweets that are recognisable. <laughs> But totally different to what we have uh, with, you know, with our banana. What are the other flavours? Um, lemon. You said lim- oh, you uh, know, I think I think lime. Easily, easily translatable. May, may we'll have more of those later. Let, let, let's face them through the show. Okay. Yeah. Let's give, give them to guests so that they can be crunching away. They are quite difficult to eat. We should do, do an overview of the fruits of summer. Yes. And um, uh, Andy Piper uh, contacted us uh, via Twitter. Uh, pointing out the um, pointing out the arrival of fruit duos in the I think the W H Smiths in Waterloo was where he located them. Yeah, he gets very specific directions I mean, to how si- to get to that shop. Since then, they've become fairly widely available. Yeah. Um, uh, Maynard's is now I think owned by uh, by Cadbury Treebore Bassett. So many see this as their response to the Roundtree's randoms. Ooh. They look there. I, d- I don't know whether this is you know half of one wine gum and then half of another oh. one just sort of melted together. I'm trying to work out what what it actually thinks they are. They're just fruit flavour gums. So, um, but they're, they're they're a limited edition. I don't know Maynard's. I don't, I'm not sure Roundtree's randoms are going to be too intimidated by this. Do I? <laughs> Andy Piper also recommended the, the Maynard sour, Sours, which I brought along for the sake of completeness. Now, these have been around for a while. Exactly. And, uh, like, uh, th- thanks, thanks for jumping in and defending <laughs> our reputation there, Rue. Mm. So I think these are just wine gums with sour uh, sugar on them. Like a fruit pastel and a wine mm. gum. Mm. Yeah, but with, with uh, sour sugar. I like mm. the fact that it's like having a cola bottle mm-hmm. mixed with a fruit pastel. Mm. Mm. I think they've been around since 2003, mm. but they're getting a bit of a, a sort of cross-promotional kick from the fruit duos. Uh-huh. <laughs> they're benefiting from the, yeah, yeah, the, the drag through. It's like it's like Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah, charting on the back of um, <laughs> of whatever her name is, not Alexander, but uh, Leona Lewis. Oh, I've lost track. But last arriving now is the cher- cherry and passion fruit tic tac yes. that, we, that, that we talked that we talked about previously. So this is uh, some red ones and some orange ones. Presumably the red are the cherry. Well, <laughs> we never fruit. assume too much with the tic tacs. <laughs> yeah, that's a good cherry flavour. I think it's the same. Mm-hmm. And let's go for the passion fruit. I mean, it's the orange is the, is the passion fruit. Oh, I like the passion mm. fruit even more. Mm. That's good. Mm. They're quite good. Yeah. I mean, often like uh, I've kind of got into the into the habit of either saving the best or the worst till last. See if you can decide which this is when Mr. Kipling unveils his tutti frutti pies. Oh wow! Oh, wow. I've gone on in the past about Mr. Kipling's sort of like desperate attempts to make French fancies more 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 relevant. With I think there were the snowdrop fancies or something at Christmas and, and the Halloween e- special Easter fancies. Yeah, yeah. and now now the summer fancies, which is just a box of all strawberry ones. <laughs> However, <laughs> on this occasion, he has he has uh, really uh, pulled out all the stops. And there's a range of there's Mr. Kipling Raspberry Ripple sli- slices, so they're, they're vaguely ice cream uh, 
inspired. Mr. Kipling Free Ripple's license. Yeah, so they're they're like they're they're a cake that tastes of raspberry ripple ice cream. It's quite good. I haven't bought you those. They were too nice. They didn't make it. Nippleton Bakewells, which are Bakewell tarts, but they taste of strawberry, chocolate, and vanilla ice cream. So that's quite nice. Haven't tried those. And perhaps the most remarkable of the bunch, Mr. Kipling's tutti fruity pies. Now. I was intrigued like the the weird thing about this uh, just to kick off like on the packet it says a delicious combination of apricot pineapple and cherry chunks with an almond (laughs) flavour just thrown in there casually don't don't know where that came from it's tutti frutti there's an almond flavour in there the other strange thing and other like just try try that bit it smells like a Batewell tart mmm What's the green stuff on the inside? <laughs> You're not the first person to ask that, though. People have pointed out, and let's just go through it again for the listener who may not remember, <laughs> who doesn't have the packet in front of them. This is apricot, pineapple, and cherry chunks with an almond flavour. I can't taste any of the pineapple, <laughs> and none or the of, cherry, or the apricot. And none of those are green. <laughs> none of them are green. It's not, it's not the famous green apricot, green pineapple, or green cherry of, um, of legend. This is a very confusing pie. It's, ta- it's like a mince pie that's been flavoured almond, I think. It's like a pie version of a, a cherry bakewell in that mm. there's an astoundingly strong almond flavour. It just seems but to be sort of raisins no. and green lumps. <laughs> there's ra- yeah, I can spot the raisins and everything else is just random <laughs> green-coloured almond flavoured weirdness. <laughs> <laughs> it, hadn't occurred, it genuinely hadn't occurred to me to look this up until you mentioned it. Obviously, it's in the ingredients. The green thing is, of course, diced candied watermelon. No. Yeah, how wild is that? And there is some candied pineapple well, and things in there, but it's it's uh, it's at least four it's four percent diced watermelon, four percent ra- raisins. I think they should be brave and say it's watermelon and yeah. raisin. Why did they go for something so green? Presumably, they put all those ingredients in there, and in the testing ceremony, mm-hmm. somebody said this tastes rubbish. <laughs> Let's put some almond flavouring in there as well. Yeah, it's not enough like a Bakewell tart. Yeah. Yeah, let's make it taste like Mr. Kipling. What's the traditional <laughs> Mr. Kipling flavour? Exceedingly so, tasty, exceedingly almondy. Exceedingly, like. exceedingly wrong, <laughs> Mr. Kipling. Oh. Maybe people have run out, run out of ideas. Perhaps in a future episode, we'll come back and look and, and look at summer puddings, which oh. I hope to be a more fruitful mm. area. You right. see what I did there? Yeah, Have you always been a Star Trek fan? Yes. Yeah, right Which from the generation? start. Um, actually, well, the, the original. Right. Because um, it did, for me, start with the Clangers. Because I think when I was about two or three years old, I used to watch the Clangers. And the Clangers lived in space. And I thought, yeah, well, okay, well, I'm going to go and visit the Clangers. I'm going to become you know, an astronaut. And at the same time, I was hearing about you know, people had landed on the moon. So to me, it just thought, yeah, okay, it's a natural thing to do. <laughs> It took me a few years later that, oh, not many people actually get into space. It's not something that happens, like, going on the bus. No, only 500 people to date have been in space. So, I mean, it's a pretty elite group. Uh, And then also, because as I grew up, I was watching Star Trek. And I think the thing I loved about Star Trek is that it was a multinational team. So it was people, you know, Chinese, um, just across the globe, all going in space. And then it looked as if, you know, the barriers of race and things like that didn't matter. And as a black kid growing up in London, I was sort of aware that sometimes I didn't fit in. But on uh, Starship Enterprise, everybody, it didn't matter where you came from or... (laughs) 
So it's, that's what I like about space. You see the world as a globe. You don't necessarily see the boundaries. Yeah. And um, if you look at our galaxy, the Milky Way, there are about 100, maybe 150 billion stars in our galaxy, each one potentially like the sun, so it has planets going around it. So how many planets just in our galaxy? And then images from the Hubble Space Telescope told us that there are probably about 100 billion galaxies in the whole of the universe. So in the scheme of things, we're pretty damn tiny. <laughs> so to be squabbling about sort of different nations and having wars here on planet Earth just seems totally pointless. <laughs> does, that, does that imply then that you believe that there is life elsewhere? Oh yeah, actually without a doubt. And I think most scientists who are aware um, of what's out there would agree. Because it's just probabilities, it's just the numbers. But the challenge with that is that our galaxy is huge. Our next door neighbour star is Proxima Centauri. And if we wanted to travel from our sun to the next door neighbour sun, uh, travelling as fast as we can in space at the moment, so that's ten and a half miles a second which is pretty good going but to make that journey from our star to the next door neighbour star would take 76,000 years wow. and we've got uh, let's say 150 billion stars in our galaxy and that's just getting to the next door neighbour one so if there is life out there I don't know if they're ever going to find us because space is very very big <laughs> So earlier you said that 500 people have ever been in space. Do you think that number is going to start going up faster from now on? Mm, that's a challenging one because to date, um, those 500 people have mainly gone up through uh, national space programs. So uh, NASA, um, the European Space Agency, they've been sending people into space. But their budgets are started to be cut and so i think there is now a push for more uh, commercialization of space and so it seems more likely that people will be going as space tourists and things like that if space tourism takes off then yes i think a lot more people will be going into space but i think at the same time for instance uh, um, president obama recently cut back on manned missions he was, he was cutting back on the moon mission as well so um uh, i think governments are going to be spending less money on putting people in space but hopefully at the same time we're going to have a surge in the commercialization of space because there are lots of, of very rich people who want to get out there and if they if there are enough of them we will get the impetus and i think we'll get out there more i made a comparison uh, a few years ago saying that um, when the wright brothers first made the first airplane no one anticipated easyjet and space could go the same way mm. the first th uh, few people who sort of um, flew were pay paying horrendous amounts of money but now we all hop around quite happily so we need that sort of uh, commercialization of space and also the, the breaking down of monopolies so many people can do it more technology will go in to make it cheaper and then i think more of us will get out there so you're not worried that it will be an elite pursuit because that will presumably be a phase that we go through rather than the norm Yes, because I think it, often things start off that way. Um, they start off as elite, and then um, as uh, demand grows, it gets cheaper and cheaper. So would either of you go into space? Oh, yeah, uh, without a moment's hesitation. What about I you, No, I don't know. I think I would need to know it was safe. That's the thing. I won't even go on a roller coaster. <laughs> and I think, but then maybe that's more dangerous than going in. Yes. <laughs> I was speaking to someone earlier, and they were saying that um, when they built the space shuttle, they thought there was a 2% possibility of fatality, and it's actually lived up to that. Oh, and God. Yes, I know, 2% isn't, isn't so such good yeah. odds. Although I think I'd gamble it. <laughs> well, the thing is, uh, at the moment, I feel quite guilty because I've got my daughter sort of lying here with my chest. <laughs> so probably not just at the moment, but yeah. when she was older. <laughs> she's cured, she can cope. You've That's briefed it. her on the risks. <laughs> the probability of things going wrong was relatively high, yeah. but national honour was at stake, and yeah. so they went ahead with it. Whereas in the private sector, Richard Branson probably won't want his customers <laughs> taking that kind of risk. Yes, but I think what things like Virgin Galactic and also the company I work for, they're coming up with a sort of a space tourism programme. They're not going to do 
doing anything is quite so challenging because this is very very low earth orbit right. you want to go um, above 100 kilometers to call yourself an astronaut mm-hmm. and so I think with the space tourism packages it, it's like an extended flight you go up there you're weightless for about three minutes and then you come back quite safely so because they're not pushing the envelope so far right. the safety factor should go up a lot it's a bit easier than landing on the moon and yes. taking off again <laughs> yes I was say, like, it must have felt in the 60s it must have really felt like and I suppose the 70s as well like we were doing stuff and it was like wow people are going to the moon and people are going to go back to the moon within five years probably we'll be living on the moon yes and now it's like and now it just seems like something we did ages ago but actually if it happened again now in exactly the same way it'd be incredible it'd still be amazing I think if somebody but why, why hasn't anything happened for so long is it because of war and all the money's been funneled into, the, into, into killing people instead of peaceful peaceful because I think yeah, if you do compare the budget spent on space to the budget spent on um, uh, military um, space is sort of a pittance um, but I, I think the, the challenge with the space was um, it was the Cold War the Russians got the first object into space they got the first person into space they got the first woman into space dogs so, as well <laughs> dogs yeah they did the dogs yeah. and, and the Americans did the chimpanzees but the, um, uh, the Russians just kept on hitting those milestones and so the Americans because their national pride and these were the commies you know the Reds are getting into space we've got to stop them and we've got to do something to show that we are equally technologically sound mm. and so they just threw money at it yeah. and um, I just don't think we'd ever be in that situation again today where they would throw that amount of money the other problem is that they went to the moon and they had um, sort of a, a number of missions but people stopped watching um, after I think the first five six missions people said okay you know, they've been to the moon uh, okay they've played golf on the moon look okay <laughs> what other sports can they play <laughs> and so people just sort of turned off right. and to spend all that money when people weren't even interested anymore mm. as if the milestone had been ticked and it's a very expensive endeavour to put people in space unfortunately also you've just taken off your uh, contact lenses and you've got glasses on now i don't know if you noticed yeah what's well i just did yeah i think uh yeah that i did that during the interview because my eyes were watering because oh. my lenses need changing i think do they um start drying out and yeah it, it becomes very painful it's oh. no good. You wouldn't know because you've got perfect eyesight. I've got brilliant eyesight and really good night vision. Oh, yeah. God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> my, uh, my optician was very excited about how good my night vision was because really? he has good night vision as well. Oh. So when he spotted this in me, he, he got all pally and like, oh, you should be in the army. You'd make a really good sniper. <laughs> brilliant. Uh, you should arrange some sort of dark games that you can play with him Ooh. if that doesn't sound too kinky <laughs> dark games yeah there should be there should be games that only people with really good night vision are allowed it's, it's a bit of a special club isn't it well I think if you turn the brightness down on your iPad Angry Birds becomes a lot harder did you, did you read in bed as a child yes uh, did you when I wasn't listening to the radio in fact often when I was listening to the radio oh. but mm. did you did you read with the lights out with your curtains open no. in the summer yeah, Ooh. you see. Oh, well, in the summer, yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. When you were supposed to be asleep. I think I probably did do that, yeah. Because I liked reading, and I probably would have wanted to read for as long as possible. Because they say that that makes your eyes worse. <gasps> but I don't know, that's like an old wives' tale, because that's what... Me and my brother both used to do that, like, obsessively get, we'd get sent to bed at, like, half eight at the age of 16 or something, so we'd just be sitting there with the curtains <laughs> the open. Age of 16. <laughs> until it was um, until it was absolutely pitch black and you'd be so engrossed in what you're reading you wouldn't want to stop and you wouldn't be allowed to turn your light on damaging your eyesight so that's yeah well I think I might have used a torch ah yeah I think we were I mean we weren't rich as a family but I think we could afford (laughs) batteries (laughs) (laughs) um 
Well, that's probably why your eyes aren't so bad then. You, uh, you had the initiative to use, a, use an aid. Uh, I think I, I remember getting a torch for Christmas one year, and I think uh, ever since then I've been okay with the eyes. Mm. Whereas you, you've screwed your eyes <laughs> up with your nighttime oh. reading. Oh, Ruth put my I'm glasses putting, on. Putting them on. And is now going to. working with the headphones. Yeah, don't break them. <laughs> we'll take the headphones off. Let's see how very disturbed. Whoa! <laughs> that's amazing! Ah, oh, it's like looking down the wrong end of a telescope. <laughs> Is it blurry? Yeah. Yeah. The curve of the lens means that I'm seeing, <laughs> as I move my head, I'm getting uh, seasick. Do you get seasick when you move your head? <laughs> it's horrible. Because they're the right strength. Oh, Layla, you're blind. I know, I told you. Shit. Presumably can... you couldn't drive without your glasses. Oh, so. God, no. No, I can't. I can't. No. I'd... Oh, just the thought of it. I can't, I can't even walk down a, a road with no people on it. It'd be, you know, it'd be dangerous. When you've got your glasses off and your lens is out... Yeah. You look like somebody who's not wearing glasses. Whereas when you've got your lenses in, you look like a normal person. I think that there's something about the fact how you know very how very bad your eyes are mm. that means that your eyes are maybe focusing differently you're or not focusing and a really? bit like you're struggling. Yeah, a little bit like you're yeah. struggling. And maybe it's because you're you know you're you're kind of yeah. try, you know you're trying to look at something that you can barely see. Yeah, probably, that's probably what it is. It makes you look a bit mad, actually. <laughs> if you ever have to do acting and, and they want you to be a bit mad, just take your glasses off and take your lenses <laughs> out, you'll be fine. Right, yeah, yeah thanks. Mm. And well, obviously I can tell what you look like when you're wearing my glasses. No. Hilarious, so, I, so I can't take the piss. <laughs> <laughs> so unfair. Uh, in South America, they've got uh, the Gemini telescopes, which is where I was working, but they've also got the VLT, which stands for the Very Large Telescope. Oh, yeah. Astronomers with lacking imagination. <laughs> There's a very large telescope, which is um, four eight-metre telescopes in the middle of the Atacama Desert. Uh, but the next project is called the ELT, which is the extremely large telescope, <laughs> which is um, uh, something of the order of 42 metres in diameter. So a mirror, 42 metres in diameter. But then um, the one that we are saving up for the future is called the OWL, which stands for Overwhelmingly Large Telescope. <laughs> and that is 100 metres in diameter. And I'd love to see that built in my lifetime. A hundred metres diameter telescope, a mirror of a hundred metres. Because when you think of the light gathering power of that, and just the engineering of something like that, it's pretty mind boggling. (laughs) Isn't there um, a place in, I think it's Scotland, that's supposed to be the darkest, uh, the best clear night sky you'll see in the UK? And and there's a nature park. Uh, Do you know about this? Uh, No, but it will make a lot of sense. Less light pollution, um, longer uh, nights in winter, Mm. so it's sort of uh, good observing. So, yes. When I've seen it on telly, it just does amazing. It's not not like any sky you've ever seen in the UK. You can just see so many stars. Because I suppose they say that, you know, if you could see, if you could, if you did have access to all the stars, it would just be like a blinding white kind of the aboriginals uh, in australia mm. they didn't have constellations because um looking at the night sky there with sort of uh, so little light pollution mm. and so many stars are uh, looking into the heart of the milky way rather than looking at stars they looked at the clouds of dust amongst the stars oh. and so they had um constellations which were made out of sort of a dark patches rather than the stars and so they have a constellation called the emu which is sort of like a dust cloud with a sort of a long neck and things like that that's amazing so if you have too many stars you sort of forget the stars and look at the dark patches (laughs) it's quite interesting that you're um you're so interested in space i suppose growing up in north north london were you did you always live in camden um most of my life yes every so often you'd get a really clear night in london Mm. and i remember oh i remember 
going out one day and seeing that the moon was out and seeing it was one of those clear, bright winter nights and sort of going around the back of the flats we were living in where there weren't so many street lights and going outside and looking up and then getting back to the front door and realising that I couldn't get in and that my dad was going to kill me because I was out at five o'clock in the morning in London. <laughs> but yeah, you don't see that many stars, but when you do see them, they just made my heart sing. I wanted to see more. Maggie, thank you for coming on to Chiffron Stop. I know you've excited me about mirrors and, uh, and um, lenses and making telescopes and space generally. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I, must be, I love space and science and everything. And so when I get talking about it, it's... Woof! <laughs> That's why it's so exciting. But thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Goodbye. Goodbye.